Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those so-called nuclear experts get it wrong. This week we check back. On the February 14 radiation leak at the waste isolation pilot plant in Carlsbad, New Mexico, we revisit Don Hancock of Southwest Research and Information Center, who has been such a reliable source of reliable information since the leak has happened. He'll bring us up to date with some more disturbing information that has not gotten into the mainstream media. No surprise there. We also add a new feature this week to Nuclear Hot Seat. Kimberly Roberson, a certified nutritionist who founded the Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network, talks with us about food safety in the wake of Fukushima and the radiation releases we are subjected to from reactors, mining sites, weapons manufacturing facilities, and elsewhere. Great information to help you preserve your health under the ever-increasing load of radiation that we all face. All this plus numbnuts of the week and the Radcast Radiation Weather Report in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, March eighteen, twenty fourteen, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. There was more information than usual in the news this past week regarding Fukushima Daiichi, in large part because of the third anniversary of the start of that nuclear accident three years ago last Tuesday. Here's some of the information that made its way into the news. On our nuclear hot seat special last week, Professor Hiroaki Kuwide of Kyoto University Research Reactor Institute said there has been no resolution at the accident site itself. Prime Minister Abe has stated that the situation is under control, but from my vantage point, the accident is not under control at all, and there have been no resolutions. The reactor cores of units one through three melted down, and we don't even know where they are. We can't even access those areas for inspection. The accident is still progressing after three years. Even after three years, we can't do anything. For the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, Matthew Carey interviewed a senior TEPCO staffer who has worked at the Fukushima plant for more than 20 years and asked that his identity not be revealed so he would not lose his job. He says the situation at the reactor is not under control and no one knows how to fix the problem. This whistleblower, and I think it's time that we stopped using the word whistleblower and started calling them truth tellers, says mistakes are made weekly and contaminated water leaks into the Pacific Ocean every day. Further. He says that the damaged reactors can never be decontaminated. That's right; you can only decontaminate an intact nuclear reactor. This is about remediation of a nuclear disaster site. 
This senior TEPCO staffer says that the damaged reactors can never be decontaminated and that people should not be moved back into the no-go zone, the 20-kilometer exclusion area around Fukushima. He went on to talk about the workers by saying that all the experienced workers have reached their radiation limits, so TEPCO has to rely on staff that don't know the site and who aren't trained. The other day, he said, when contaminated water overflowed from a tank, an alarm was ringing, but they didn't go and check. I couldn't believe it. It was ringing for nine hours, and they thought the alarm was out of order. I feel it is impossible to fix before my death. We just don't have the technology to fix it. We just can't deal with the melted fuel. The New York Times jumped in with a surprisingly good article that talked about the crisis of manpower at the plant. Yukatero Naku, a contractor and former plant engineer for General Electric, said that last October, when a crew of contract workers was sent to remove hoses and valves as part of a long-overdue upgrade to the plant's water purification system, the team received only a 20-minute briefing from their supervisor and were given no diagrams of the system they were to fix. The laborers were not warned that a hose near the one they would be removing was filled with water laced with radioactive cesium. While removing their protective gear, they chose the wrong hose, and a torrent of radioactive water began spilling out. Panicked, the workers thrust their gloved hands into the water to try to stop the leak, spraying themselves and two other workers who raced over to help. According to several accounts, alcoholism is rampant, and one worker said he and his colleagues sometimes showed up for work hung over. Of course, what can you expect? when the standards for workers are so low. Because skilled workers have exceeded the limit of 5 millisieverts of exposure to radiation per year, labor brokers are getting desperate and have increasingly taken their pleas online and made clear their standards are low. One ad for work involving radiation monitoring said, you must have common sense and be able to carry out a conversation. Another read, Out of work? Nowhere to live? Nowhere to go? Nothing to eat? Come to Fukushima! Hiroyuki Watanabe, a city council member in nearby Iwake, was quoted in the New York Times as saying, We're taking people who are basically living hand to mouth. To which Nuclear Hot Seat adds, These are the people upon whom we are relying to protect us from annihilation by radiation. Oi, how bad is it? Just this week, record cesium levels in the Pacific Ocean from a sampling location north of the Fukushima plant recorded spikes to 6,900 becquerels per cubic meter of water. This high came from a low of nothing being detected all in one day with no word as to what caused this spike. A senior scientist at the Japanese government's Meteorological Research Institute, Michio Aoyama, said levels of radioactive cesium-137 in the surface water of the Pacific Ocean could be 10,000 times as high as contamination after Chernobyl. Yet we are not getting this news on a consistent basis. Why? Well, 
Mr. Aoyama, for one, prepared to publish his findings, but the Inspector General of the Institute called him with an unusual demand that Mr. Aoyama remove his own name from the paper. That took away a high level of credibility when Aoyama did ask for his name to be removed and the article was not published. Off the record, university researchers in Japan say that even now, three years after the triple meltdown at the Fukushima Daiichi plant, they feel under pressure to play down the impact of the disaster. In several cases, the professors say, they have been obstructed or told to steer clear of data that might cause public concern. Stories of problems with Fukushima-related research are common, Ayayama said, including accounts of several professors being told not to measure radiation in the surrounding prefectures. That's right. If it isn't measured, it doesn't exist. And so if you live in northeastern Japan and come down with cancer of any sort, it's your own damn fault because you probably ate too many bananas. Yet, as was shared by Beyond Nuclear, Fukushima Medical University, sometimes known as Fukum U, allowed its staff and students to take potassium iodide tablets in the initial days after the Fukushima nuclear disaster began, but refused to hand them out to members of the public, stating that the radiation doses would not be so high to warrant such action. If they weren't going to be that high, why did you take them? Now, as thyroid cancers and suspected cancers are increasing among children who are exposed to radioactive iodine from the triple meltdowns, experts from Fukum U, particularly Dr. Shunichi Yamashita, the Japanese Dr. Mengele, who has been dubbed Dr. 100 millisieverts because he has claimed that anything under this dose is not linked to disease when, in reality, There is no safe dose of radiation, according to many experts and the United States Beer 7 report. That stands for Biological Effects of Ionizing Radiation, not Alcohol. It's believed by many that Fukum Yu's and Dr. Yamashita's tragic decision to withhold potassium iodide from the public while giving it to those associated with the university could easily be influencing their conclusions regarding the cause of the thyroid cancer increases. The government of the prefecture of Fukushima refuses to publish any relevant details about the prevalence of cancer. Information requests pertaining to previous cancer cases among children and the degree of contamination remain unanswered. Two cases of thyroid cancer have already been confirmed among the 3,200 young residents of Namie. Shinichi Tokonami, a radiation expert at Hirosaka University, was surprised by the findings. He said, that is more than expected, adding that, The reason behind this might be the increased precision of the measuring instruments. But Shinichi Sakine, a physician specializing in thyroid and breast cancer, said, Although comprehensive studies are missing, I see a connection between nuclear accidents and the occurrence of cancer. There are simply too many cases. While much of this material may come as no surprise to regular listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat, It was nice to see the once-a-year orgasm of coverage 
at least getting a few of these tidbits and aspects out to the general public. Moving on internationally, in Nova Scotia, not usually thought of as a nuclear hotspot, but last Thursday, March 13, it was feared that a container of nuclear material was leaking aboard a ship at Halifax's North End Series Terminal. A possible spill was reported and has since been confirmed. A container fell, and it could possibly have some type of nuclear material in it, according to Halifax Fire and Emergency Service Division Commander Corey Beals. A hazmat team was sent, and we have meters and equipment. Later, the Halifax Fire Department confirmed that four cylinders containing uranium hexafluoride fell from a container, and two teams of firefighters were sent onto the ship to test for radioactivity levels. The first team found nothing unusual, Beals said. However, the second team picked up a higher-than-normal level of radioactivity. There were unconfirmed reports that the levels detected were three times normal. Uranium hexafluoride is used to provide fuel for nuclear power and nuclear weapons. According to a tweet on Twitter by the wife of a worker at the series terminal, her husband was on scene when the container fell and has been quarantined. If there's no radiation, why are you quarantining people? In Scotland, a fire involving low-level waste has been reported at the decommissioned Dunray nuclear plant. The Scottish Environmental Protection Agency, or SEPA, said it had been informed of the incident on last Wednesday. Last week, Dunray was the focus of controversy when Defense Secretary Philip Hammond revealed that a leak had been found in a Ministry of Defense nuclear test reactor there more than two years ago. Low levels of radioactivity were detected in a prototype core at the Naval Reactor Test Establishment at the facility in 2010, but SIPA, the Scottish Environmental Protection Agency, was not informed until nine months later. And the Scottish government has demanded an apology from the Ministry of Defense for failing to inform ministers in Edinburgh. Fat chance you're going to get that one. Hammond initially said that there had been no measurable change in radiation discharged, but later amended his answer to specify that there was, quote, no measurable alpha-emitting discharge, end quote. Okay, what about the beta and what about the gamma? No word on that. So while we're touring the world, let's take a look at this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, Nuclear Hot Seed, Nuclear Hot Seed, None that's out a week. The UK wins it hands down this week because a blundering Royal Navy warship accidentally fired a torpedo at a nuclear dockyard. It doesn't get much nuttier than this in the nuclear world. Workers watched in disbelief as the tube-shaped projectile flew 200 yards through the air before blasting a hole in a security fence and slamming into a storage container. I'm sorry, it just sounds like a Monty Python routine. The 650-acre site is the sole repair and refueling facility for Britain's nuclear submarines. Luckily... The torpedo was an unarmed version used for testing, so it merely thudded into the metal container and did not explode. 
However, it did collapse the whole side of the container. If the thing had been armed, it would have let out a 200-meter blast. 200 meters is just 22 yards shy of two complete football fields. So you could be talking about a major loss of life. Yeah, I think. According to this story, the torpedo system test firing, which generally takes place in the naval base, has been suspended subject to completion of the investigation. Does that mean when the investigation is complete, they're going to restart firing torpedoes in a nuclear shipyard? You know, with incompetence like this, terrorists don't need to do anything against us. All they have to do is sit back and wait for us to destroy ourselves. And that's why the British Royal Navy is this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. We're going to close the news this week on a little bit of good news, and that is that the Fairbanks, Alaska City Council has unanimously passed a resolution urging the state and federal government, as well as the United Nations, to do more radiation testing in Alaska waters. The resolution read in part, Be it resolved that the City Council of the City of Fairbanks, Alaska, urges the federal government, state of Alaska, and the United Nations to begin a thorough and ongoing monitoring program of Alaska's coastal water resources, its major freshwater streams and lakes, particularly surface waters that supply potable water to citizens. The monitoring program should be adequately funded to accomplish scientific analysis at the University of Alaska, wherein it will identify and quantify levels of radioisotopes in commercial seafood and subsistence foods. Data should be published on a website dedicated to that purpose. That is a model we can all pursue in our local communities and is akin to the strategy that was used by activists in Southern California in gathering resolutions from all the local cities for the shutdown of San Onofre. Before we get to the week's featured interview, I wanted to remind you that my nuclear memoir is up on Amazon Kindle. Yay! It's called Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Beyond. And the response I've received on this ebook so far has been extremely gratifying. Here's what one five-star review had to say. I'll try not to blush too loudly. Libby Halevi has written an important, powerful, uncompromising book about the human cost of the nuclear industry. One gets the feeling of actually having been at Three Mile Island with her, an indelible experience for her and now for me. Her journey from then to now creates powerful modeling for anyone who seeks to move from victim to survivor to leader. A compulsively readable book filled with vivid details and an unexpected amount of humor. Extraordinary woman, extraordinary book. If you want to check it out, there is a free excerpt up on the website nuclearhotseat.com. Look for the big yellow box, put in your information, and by return email, you will get a PDF that takes me from landing at Harrisburg Airport five days before the Three Mile Island nuclear accident began to being trapped in my friend's house after evacuation was announced. It's an experience I fervently wish none of you has to experience, but you can do so vicariously by getting my book. 
By the way, Amazon Kindle has free software available, so you can read it on any digital device. The radiation leak at the Waste Isolation Pilot Project, or WIP site in Carlsbad, New Mexico, may be out of the mainstream media news, but not nuclear hot seat. We check in again with Don Hancock of Southwest Research and Information Center, an environmental watchdog group based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He has been a trusted informant on the aftermath of the radiation leak on February 14th, and here is his update. Bring us up to date on what we didn't know two weeks ago about the accident at the WIP site that we have learned since then. Well, we still don't know the answers to all the major questions, like what caused it, what amount of radioactive and toxic chemicals were released into the underground, what amount was released on the surface. We do have more data from the filters and in terms of how much has been collected. So we know more about that. We know the DOE released the meteorological data, so we know more about the wind conditions. So there are a number of things that we have better information about, but as I say, all the major things we still don't know. We know that at least 17 workers were contaminated, and there are 135 workers that are being tested, so it's pretty likely that the number of workers contaminated is more than those 17. There's still a lot to be learned. The site is still shut down. Nobody has yet been underground to try to figure out better what actually happened in the underground. That's a thumbnail of what we know and a lot of things we still don't know. Let's go into some of those points in more detail because that's what the listeners of this show want to hear. What is currently believed to be the nature of the accident? What are the best theories that are out there? Historically, the Department of Energy has said that in a situation like this, when there were no workers underground, so it shouldn't have been any kind of operational error or equipment accident, that the only two possibilities, and we both said they're both pretty incredible, would happen less than once in 10,000 years, so they were wrong about that. But those two scenarios are, one, either a roof collapse, this is a salt mine, so you have a mining accident where some of the ceiling collapses on drums and causes a release. Or two, that one or more of the drums would, for some reason or another, explode. Again, that's not supposed to happen because there aren't supposed to be explosives in any of the containers, and the containers are filtered so that there shouldn't be a hydrogen gas buildup. So DOE doesn't want to speculate about which of those two or whether both of those two things happened in some way or another. We should get some better information, and and the information we have up to now in terms of you know, what's been released into the environment and what's been captured by the filters doesn't really help us to kind of know what happened. It appears that the amount of radioactivity that we have would be from more than one container, so there seems to be multiple containers involved. The fact that some of the radioactive particles went from the presumed site of the release through the mine up the exhaust shaft and traveling at least more than a half a mile would indicate that there was some energy, some push behind the release. But again, we don't really know, and if the release turns out to be something different, then either the 
roof where the explosion fire, why then, you know, that would just go to show that things that are never supposed to happen, happen. I did read that there was a history of roof sections at WIP collapsing two decades ago during stress tests. Are you familiar with that? There have always been stability problems with the underground mine. The presumed uh, knowledge of how fast the salt moves and how it moves and how to make sure there aren't collapses over time we've always known was a problem. In terms of detailed examinations of rift falls, there really haven't been. The main concern has always been about a roof fall where you have either workers or waste or both. And the fact that the underground instability is a problem is the reason that three of the seven rooms in the first panel, the first section that waste was put in, were never used because of concerns about roof instability. And presumably, there have been roof falls in panel one, but since panel one's been sealed up, we don't know when and exactly the nature of them. So... You know, the fact that ceiling can collapse is a known thing, but it's not supposed to be happening now. And if the roof fall happened in panel 7, which is what DOE presumes based on where the underground air radiation detection monitoring triggered, that panel was just mined and just opened. So if there was a ceiling collapse there, that would tend to indicate that they really have no basic understanding of what's going on. If an area that's just been mined and has been deemed stable to put waste in has a ceiling collapse, you know, then they're they're totally wrong. The radiation release. The original information that we got was that it had only spread perhaps as far as half a mile, and yet there are reports that I have read that the radiation background levels have been seen at elevated levels in Carlsbad. What's the current understanding of any impact from radiation in Carlsbad? There's only one air monitoring station in Carlsbad, so, you know, that's one point uh, about 26 miles away from the site. So, clearly, what that monitor shows or doesn't show can't be described as indicative of what would have happened 26 miles away and that it totally captured what is or isn't in Carlsbad. So, the actual data from the monitoring station shows higher levels of radioactivity than what the historic background had been. DOE, when they subjected that to their lab analysis, have preliminarily said that they don't find any of that to be from whip waste, but they haven't really provided all the data that we would have. One of the many problems that this incident shows is that the monitoring is not sufficient. Maybe it was sufficient when, as far as we know, there weren't any releases. But now that there is a release, there has been a release, some of the contamination could have spread to Carlsbad or to people who were between the site and Carlsbad. As I say, there isn't good monitoring. We don't know how many workers were contaminated who were you know, on the site within less than a half a mile of where the release presumably happened. So if we don't know how many workers were contaminated and what the health impacts there might be, it's disappointing but no surprise. So what, what we've been arguing for from the beginning is 
additional air monitoring would be helpful. But what we really need is a comprehensive set of soil samples on the site and off the site to get a better determination of what's in the soil. And if there are amounts in the soil, that means they were first in the air and then they're in the soil. But as winds pick up and change, something that's in the soil now can be resuspended and, and blown away. So we need to know what's in the soil so that there can be some amount of cleanup of that and so we can better identify the locations and direction of the wind. So just one more point on that. The monitoring locations, the air monitoring locations, are basically near the site and to the west and northwest of the site and one site to the southeast. Insofar as winds could have taken waste to the north or northeast, there is no air monitoring there to detect it. And given the time frame that it now appears that radiation was being released, that's a significant problem as well. So again, that's why it's important what the air monitoring shows, but it's more important that there's more extensive soil sampling being done some of that sampling is being done, but the analysis isn't back, so we really don't know very much about that. There were reports that there was either some kind of evacuation or significant levels of contamination detected far away from the site. There has been no evacuation ordered other than many of the workers at the site haven't been allowed to come back on the site, but in terms of outside the site, there, haven't been any, there hasn't been any evacuation and as I say, the data is so sparse at this point that we don't know where the contamination has spread. You may have covered the answer to this already, but I just want to cover one more point on this, and that is that Carlsbad Environmental Monitoring and Research Center's director, Russell Hardy, has maintained that radioactive particles could not have spread as far as Carlsbad, saying that they are heavier isotopes and could only travel 15 to 20 miles while Carlsbad is 26 miles away. Well, that, like some other things that Russell has said, is a hypothesis. It's not demonstrably true. Certainly, americium-241 and plutonium-239 and 240 particles have traveled when they're released from nuclear bombs a lot more than 15 or 20 miles Russell has provided no information to back that up, and while he's done some good work, he's made some other statements historically that I've questioned him on that he hasn't been able to back up. For example, on February 19th, when he disclosed to his credit that their monitor about six-tenths of a mile from the exhaust shaft showed contamination, he said that presumably that was from small amounts of radioactivity released before the filtration system started. When I questioned him about how he knew that was the case, he said, well, he didn't know it. It was a hypothesis. So I would say anything he's saying about how far things can travel is a hypothesis, not something that has been proven one way or another. Regarding the workers, we're now up to 17 who are known to have been contaminated and that more are being tested. Are these results coming because of tests that are being conducted by URS, the managing company of the site, the Department of Energy, or perhaps by the United Steel Workers, which sent in their own team of experts to do testing? So far, the fecal samples that have shown 
internal contamination of the 17 workers were all collected by the contractor, which is Nuclear Waste Partnership, which URS, as you mentioned, is sort of the lead contractor. We have asked for the data in terms of actual levels that have been found in fecal and the fact that they continue to say there's nothing in the urine and they say that there are no indication of contamination in the lung counts that have been done. But so far, that hasn't been done. To my knowledge, um, and obviously the workers and the union want to be protective of the privacy of the workers, et cetera, et cetera, but they have not, to my knowledge, released any data in terms of what's going on, nor have they indicated what outside independent medical people they are are talking to, although I believe they are talking to some outside independent medical people. The testing that has been done has all been requested by the contractor. In some cases, the workers may be trying to get additional analysis, but they haven't disclosed that. We're all used to receiving spin from officials when anything goes wrong at a nuclear facility. But I found it remarkable that a spokeswoman for URS, which runs WIP, has stated that any radiation released from the site is, quote, down at the levels of licking your iPhone charger. Well, that's not a medically competent analysis at all. Since we don't know the data, we don't know what actual levels are. But medical people would say, medical people who do deal with radiation typically say, don't get any radiation that you don't have to, regardless of the supposed low level of the dose, any amount can increase your risk. And that's not something you do unless it's necessary. And in terms of exposing the workers, that wasn't necessary. It was especially not necessary to bring in dozens of workers on Saturday morning, February 15th, after they knew there was a release in the underground to potentially expose these more than 100 workers to contamination. And it's not correct that doctors who've actually examined the workers and looked at their test results and ordered additional testing, it said that there is no risk to these people. So I'm very concerned that the contractor it was inappropriate for all of the 13 workers that were on the surface on Valentine's Day night when the release apparently was initiated. All 13 of those people were contaminated, although they were told they weren't contaminated, and it was almost 12 days later, February 26th, before they notified that they had tested positive for contamination. That additional workers were brought in and were exposed on Saturday the 15th, which is clearly the case, is really unacceptable, and the contractor, rather than talking about the releases are small and there's no impact, should actually be apologizing to the workers, should not be proposing to bring more workers on site, which they're continuing to do, should be paying for thorough screening, which they haven't done, thorough screening not only of those contaminated workers, but of their vehicles, their homes, and their family members, because if they have internal contamination, it's highly unlikely that all the contamination that they experienced went in their nose and into their lungs and then was excreted or not. Um, it's likely some of that was carried with them. 
four additional workers that were contaminated on February 15th were not notified that they tested positive for internal contamination until March the 9th, more than three weeks later. So, you know, again, this whole way that the workers have been dealt with, in my view, is is totally unacceptable. And the company, rather than talking about no risk, should be talking about and providing funding for comprehensive testing of the workers and, as I say, their vehicles, their homes, their family members to try to ensure that the contamination hasn't been spread that way as well. Where do we stand now in terms of the ability of workers to safely get into the site, get underground, and assess what the damage is? The Department of Energy, the the contractor has said that they have a plan to put workers underground, which the Department of Energy is, is reviewing, and they want to send a few workers underground sometime soon, maybe this week, maybe next week, to try to start assuring that the ventilation system is okay underground, that this whatever stability problems there might have been can be avoided or fixed to try to identify what the source of the contamination is and how to fix it or to mitigate it or to close it up or whatever. So I guess my assumption, but not my desire, my assumption is that some number of workers could be going underground soon. I think that's likely premature. Even now, the levels of radiation in the filters and in the monitors are much lower, but still higher than what they historically have been in the underground and on the surface. So to me, there are real concerns about sending workers underground, although on on the one hand. On the other hand, obviously, until folks get underground, we can't know as much as we'd like to know about what happened. Another reason I don't think it's appropriate to be bringing lots more workers onto the surface other than those who there's a feeling are absolutely needed is there's more than 5,000 cubic feet of waste on the surface at the site. And if, and we don't know, but if part of the problem in the underground was some kind of failure of a container or explosion of a container, to have containers sitting in the parking area and in the waste handling building is potentially a problem as well. So my view is that we ought to be really careful, and the contractor and DOE should be especially careful since they've had so many failures and mistakes and errors in the last month or so. What measures have been taken to prevent the vents from releasing further leakage? The air is all supposed to come out through the exhaust shaft. Of course, one of the things we don't know is whether that's actually the case because since there aren't monitors on the other three shafts, we don't know for sure what, if anything, is coming out then. But in terms of the exhaust shaft, there are normally three ducts, big, huge ducts, that the air comes out on the surface, and all of those are supposed to be closed when the ventilation system goes into filtration mode, i.e. rather than venting the underground air into the environment, the underground air first goes through this filtration process with the HEPA filters. DOE always maintained from the beginning that everything was working fine. It wasn't until about three weeks later that they said, well, we 
send a worker in to put foam in the dampers of those three ducts that vent to the outside because they were almost totally closed but not totally closed, and so there was leakage coming out of them. So, again, there was some radioactivity coming out beyond what might have passed through the filters themselves. So DOE now says that those have been sealed off, and so the air, the ventilation and air all has to go through the filters. But remember that the filters, the, the big filters, I mean, they're sampling done of very small parts of the filter system, but the big filters themselves haven't been changed. And so over time, they are collecting more and more materials, and most filters, when they start getting lots of things in them, start being less effective. So these, again, are things that are unknown but are reasons for concern that people can and do have about what's continuing to go on. Regarding those concerns, what is the mood in the local community regarding this accident? So I'm in Albuquerque. I'm 300 miles away. So I only know what the mood in the community is from talking to other folks, not from having been there since the accident myself. The general reporting, which you and other people have seen, I think, is that People are more concerned than they historically have been about WIP, but generally there's still a lot of support for the facility and the workers, and some number of the workers at least appear to be anxious to get back on site, etc. As I say, I think some other workers may be less interested in that. But I would say two things. Carlsbad's a company town when it comes to WIP, which means it's always been difficult for people who have questions or concerns to say things publicly. And when bad things happen in a company town, the basic reaction of many people is to kind of hunker down and say, well, we'll get through this one. I think depending on what kind of information comes out over time about numbers of workers contaminated, what the levels of contamination they have, what the levels of contamination on-site are, what the levels of contamination off-site are, whether Carlsbad or other places, that that will impact to some extent what people think. Just two more questions. How has media coverage been? Generally not very good from my standpoint, and part of that is understandable. There's one local newspaper in Carlsbad, the current Argus, so it's a small paper with not a lot of resources. They've put pretty much all the resources they have on the story. So on the one hand, that's a good thing. On the other hand, again, they've always been very supportive of WIP, and most of their reporting up to and some of their reporting since the release basically just comes out of the Department of Energy's press releases. So they have inadequate resources to deal with it. Other media have sort of come and gone, and and I'm glad for all of that, whether it's national media like the New York Times or other media in the state, such as the Albuquerque Journal or the TV stations or radio stations. But unfortunately, because there hasn't been a long-term focus on WIP, there are few reporters who are very knowledgeable about it. There are very few reporters who are knowledgeable about radiation and radiation contamination issues. So the amount of the coverage, the depth of the coverage is not what we would like to see, and I continue to hope there will be additional focus and coverage to direct it. But as you and your listeners know very well, we're putting less money into 
media in this country. So in terms of on-the-site hard reporting of knowledgeable reporters, that doesn't happen on a lot of things, and it's not happening nearly as much as this incident deserves. On a personal note, do you own a radiation meter, and if so, have you been using it? My organization does a lot of monitoring. A lot of our work is done in northwestern New Mexico and northeastern Arizona, where there is a significant amount of uranium contamination from uranium mining and milling. So we have five people on staff who have radiation detection monitors and routinely use them in their work. So we have the capability of doing it. I have not used a radiation meter here in my office in Albuquerque since the release, nor do I have any reason to believe that I need to do so. I mean, we could if we needed to, but again, we're a long ways away from the WIP site. We have no indication that contamination would have spread up here. And unfortunately, some of our people on a regular basis are in pretty heavily contaminated places, and part of what we're doing is monitoring the homes of Navajo people, including pregnant women and newborn children, to try to ensure that they avoid being in a radiologically contaminated environment, which unfortunately some of them live quite close to because companies in the federal government have not historically cleaned up the huge mess of radioactive and heavy metal contamination from the uranium mining of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Well, that points to a whole other story that we can discuss at another time. Sure. For now, Don, thank you so much for this ongoing information, and we'll continue to check back with you for further updates. Uh, please do so. Thank you very much. That was Don Hancock of Southwest Research and Information Center. We will continue to check in with Don to get the latest on what's happening at the website. Last week's Nuclear Hot Seat Fukushima Anniversary Special, Voices from Japan, has provided good news and bad news. The good news is that the show has gone viral in Japan and was even mentioned from the stage of the Sayonara Nukes Rally in Tokyo last Saturday, where film star Midori Kiyuchi, the Glenn Close of Japan, emceed the event and spoke about her experience being one of the speakers on that program. That was terrific. But the bad news is bandwidth charges. If someone knows a better way of posting nuclear hot seats so that I don't keep incurring additional charges, the more popular I get, send me an email and let's discuss. But in the meantime, if you've thought about donating to the show, now would be a great time to do so. Make it the same as what you'd spend on a mochaccino. Or make it more substantial if you can. Go to the homepage, nuclearhotseat.com, scroll down just a smidge to the big red donate button, and send what you can. Now we have a new feature that will be showing up every other week on the show. Food safety and health protection information from Kimberly Roberson. She is a certified diet counselor and nutrition educator, the founder and director of Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network, and author of Silence Deafening, Fukushima Fallout, A Mother's Response. Kim's also a former nuclear campaigner for Greenpeace Nuclear, and she blogs at both NewHealthDesign.com and for Natural News. Lots of creds, lots of good info. Give a listen. My name is Kimberly Roberson, and I'm a nutritionist, an activist, an optimist, 
but I'm also a realist. Surviving in a world with nuclear power and weapons is a daunting task when you think about it, and we do need to be thinking about it. Fukushima Daiichi has done many things, and not least of all, has opened our eyes in the West to the threat of nuclear waste in our food supply. Nuclear power and food don't mix, but what are we to do? I've thought about this pretty much 24-7 for the past three years, and I've concluded that we need to do two things. One, be informed. Civilizations have always been tested by crisis in one form or another. While Fukushima is, without a doubt, the greatest crisis we have faced, it's a crisis that we need to face head-on. We're talking about transgenerational DNA damage that is caused by exposures to nuclear power. While we all need to join forces and work toward renewables, this is one fact that the anti-nuclear movement needs to be talking about more, transgenerational DNA damage from internal exposures. Which brings me to the second thing, taking action to protect our food supply. Because contrary to what most people believe, even organic food is not the safe haven we want it to be. Organic is still best overall, but it isn't tested for nuclear waste. Organic food is great, in that it's not sprayed with pesticides or grown with GMO seeds, nor is it irradiated as a form of preserving the shelf life. But currently, it is not tested for radiation from nuclear accidents. Since Fukushima began, we have been confronted with many questions where food is concerned and the potential for internal contamination of radionuclides. For instance, and this one's obvious, is fish really good for us to eat anymore? As if mercury from industrial pollution wasn't bad enough, now we know that Fukushima is continuing to dump hundreds of tons of radioactive water daily into the Pacific where fish spawn and then travel to U.S. waters. Recently, there were two studies that showed that every bluefin tuna sampled for research tested positive for cesium-137. Now We know from the National Institutes of Health Beer 7 report that there are no safe levels of radiation, none. So, if you hear that it's only a little bit of cesium in that tuna sandwich or in that sushi dinner, stop and consider for a minute how you may be consuming more cesium from other sources, too. Radionuclides are dangerous isotopes that are derived from plutonium, the most dangerous substance known. Ingestion of these radionuclides are cumulative in the body and are mistaken for healthy minerals like calcium and magnesium. Cesium affects heart muscle and other organs, and little girls are seven times more susceptible to radiation in food, otherwise known as internal contamination, as are boys due to radioactive cesium's absorption by their ovaries. And another example, what about the healthiest, most digestible form of dairy, goat's milk? Goat milk and cheeses have long been prized by health-minded consumers, but now we know that even they are vulnerable to radioactive waste from nuclear industry production and accidents and quite possibly more foods are being affected. In California, the University of California Berkeley School of Nuclear Engineers sampled many different sources in March of 2011 and beyond, including topsoil, lettuces, spinach, cow's milk, rainwater, groundwater, and many of them tested positive for cesium-137, 134, or strontium-90. So it's not even a question anymore of whether or not the nuclear power production and accidents are affecting our food supply. We know that it's a fact. If you live in a vicinity of a nuclear reactor and have a garden, you're also growing food nearby to radiation emissions because they are an inherent function of nuclear power. 
otherwise known as planned batch releases. Nuclear power creates literally hundreds of harmful radionuclides and some with hazardous lives that last for tens of thousands of years or longer. Experts at Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network and Beyond Nuclear believe that much of our food could still be safe, but without testing, we don't know for sure. Clearly, we're living in a different world now, one I've come to think of as AF or after Fukushima. And this new world requires new measures to protect ourselves from internal contamination. Safe food isn't handed to us on a silver platter. It's necessary to become involved as citizens and work for safer food standards. It's a real shame that more people are not becoming aware and involved with nuclear power's impact on our food supply, but we can change that. It's been an uphill battle for the last three years to awaken even some activists to this problem. There are some in the anti-nuclear movement and environmental movements who think of food as somehow being separate from who we are, but we can't separate our food from our health and environment. In fact, food is one of the very few ways we connect with the earth on a daily basis. For some people, that connection is stronger than others, depending on if you like processed food or whole food. But one thing we all have in common is that we need food, and we need it to be safe from nuclear power. And in the end, one thing is abundantly clear. We cannot allow another Fukushima to happen, or another Three Mile Island, or another Chernobyl, or any one of the other nuclear accidents that happen every year. We have to fight for food monitoring in the U.S., and we also need to continue to fight to shut down nukes and transition now to renewable energy. Greenpeace released a report finding that for the first time, new installations of alternatives outpaced dirty energy sources, not in production, but in new installations. The production will follow, and that's why I'm an optimist. To hurry this effort along, work is underway to change the current FDA recommendations and to create much lower binding limits that would become even lower still when new technology for testing food becomes available. You can learn more about Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network's citizen petition to the FDA at www.ffan.us. Please become involved and make a difference. I'll be back in a few weeks with more information. Every week I'm here, there'll be something new to consider. Kimberly Roberson will be hosting a teleconference on the benefits of using zeolite to detoxify from radiation. It will take place this Sunday, March 23rd at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific Time. For more information, go to newhealthdesign.com and click on the Upcoming Events tab. We'll also have a link up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com slash blog, under episode number 143. John Stewart, you did nothing for Fukushima, John Stewart, nothing. We must talk. Now I'm going after your producers. You've been warned. Here's the weekly radiation weather report with Mimi German and Radcast. This is Mimi German for the Radcast Report, radically relevant and the first of its kind. Today is Tuesday, March 18th, 2014. We are seeing more leaks at Fukushima and more dangerous leaks at the WIPP, the WIP plant in Carlsbad, New Mexico. How do we know? We use our Geiger counters. We notice what background should be, and when it goes up, we notice. We look at wind maps from Japan over the Pacific into the United States. We have readings in Portland, Oregon, where RADCAST is located, at an average of 38 counts per minute from the current normal average of 32. We have readers in the United States who are telling us in Amarillo, Texas, 
that the averages are up to 106 counts per minute. This is a reminder, folks, contrary to what the nuclear industry wants you to believe, nuclear power and nuclear weapons create man-made radiation. It is not a natural occurring radiation, like radiation from the Earth or from the sun. Man-made radiation is called ionizing radiation, and it causes damage to the health of everything living. For the RADCAST report today across the United States, Amarillo, Texas is currently at 96 counts per minute and rising. On the East Coast, Northampton, Massachusetts is at 45 counts per minute and Woodbury, Connecticut at 38. Portland, Oregon is currently at 38 counts per minute as well. In Rapid City, South Dakota, it's 45 counts per minute and Petaluma, California, a lovely 32 counts per minute. Thank you for listening to the RADCAST report on Nuclear Hot Seat. This is Mimi German for RADCAST.org. Here's the final thought. Last week's Nuclear Hot Seat Fukushima Anniversary Special, Voices from Japan, ranks as one of the most fulfilling creative endeavors of my life. Nine speakers, eight of them speaking in Japanese with English translations read by professional voiceover performers, original music from Japan, help from 15 people, including my invaluable co-producer, Beverly Finlay Kaneko. It was quite an undertaking, and we pulled together to pull it off. The response from listeners has been phenomenal. And in Japan, a long list of experts are clamoring to be interviewed so that their information can get out into the world, too. So that's what we're going to do. Beverly and I are teaming up to create an ongoing series for Nuclear Hot Seat, Voices from Japan. Starting in April, we will present unedited statements by experts, professors, engineers, whistleblowers, a.k.a. truth-tellers, nuclear refugees, normal people caught up in the Fukushima disaster who are willing to speak their truth to the world. These interviews will be translated for the English-language nuclear hot seat and posted separately in Japanese. In this way, Nuclear Hot Seat seeks to be a bridge between our countries and a weekly source of honest information directly from the source on what's actually happening in Japan. We invite you to keep listening. And I want to remind you that next week will be the Nuclear Hot Seat Three Mile Island Anniversary Special in honor of the 35th anniversary of that nuclear accident near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Changed my life. You'll hear exactly how. You're not going to want to miss it. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, March 18, 2014. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from enenews.com, Fairbanks Daily News, Asahi Shimbun, Australian Broadcasting Corporation, New York Times Beyond Nuclear, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, The Chronicle Herald of Nova Scotia, Global News, Express.com.uk, Albuquerque Journal, Carlsbad Current Argus, KRQE-TV, and the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community. You can subscribe to us on our new YouTube channel, Nuclear Hot Seat Videos, or on iTunes under Podcast. Also, like us, like us, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. The Nuclear Hot Seat theme is written by me, sung and arranged by Mary Lee Weaver. Nuclear Hot Seat is syndicated by UCY.TV. Our archive is available on iTunes or at NuclearHotSeat.com slash blog. 
All comments welcome, as long as you keep them civil. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2014, Libby Halebi and Hardest Street Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, permission to reuse granted for nonprofit purposes, as long as proper attribution, website, and email are included. If you are professional media, send me an email. Let's talk. This is Libby Halevi of Hardest Street Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we shut down San Onofre and you can shut down your nuke too. And we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat.